And now for a word from our sponsors. Are you fed up with hearing about the modern data stack only to realize that what it really means is buy these half dozen expensive tools and install them all just to get the data you need? You need right data. We combine the tools you need to turn raw data into trusted data for your business users, all in a single, modular, no-code platform. Easily do batch or streaming ingest, transform data, and build and orchestrate pipelines in our Data Factory Data Engineering module. The tools essential to delivering high-quality, reliable data through data observability, profiling, and ML-powered business rule generation are all in our Data Trust module. And to make it easy for users to find and take action on all that trusted data. Data Market is the next-gen catalog that makes it easy for users to find data products, to request access, and to start using the data through APIs, connectors, or even generative AI-powered data analytics. Get a free trial and learn why companies like Walmart, Johnson & Johnson, and General Electric chose right data for their data teams and how you can cut your data stack costs by 50% at GetRightData.com. A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mont. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Hi, everyone. This is Jean-Marc. I am the creator of Data Mesh, uh, the founder of Next Data. We are reimagining what data sharing could look like. We are growing our team rapidly, and we need you. If you are a distributed systems engineer, if you're a product manager or designer of a large-scale PaaS SaaS infrastructure, please check out our page at nextdata.com and look at our open roles. We'd love to hear from you. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Episode 260, Driving the Big Picture Forward, more on Northern Trust's data mesh implementation. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Jimmy Coslow, 
Data Mesh Enablement Lead at Northern Trust. And yes, that's his actual title. Pretty interesting. To be clear, though, he was only representing his own views on the episode. Also, FYI, there were some technical difficulties in the episode where it just kept shutting off the recording. So thanks to Jimmy for sticking through, and hopefully it isn't too noticeable that I had to ask some uh, follow-ups on things where I didn't actually get to hear his, his full previous answer. There's also a lot of physical or philosophical discussion in this conversation around data mesh you know, tied to their very deep implementation experience. It's, it's hard to sum up in full without writing a small novel, and I still kind of did that. Basically, this is one uh, to probably listen to over just reading the notes or transcript. Also, I came up with a terrible new phrase, asking people to, quote unquote, get out there and be funky. So <laughs> be excited for that. So here are some key takeaways or thoughts from Jimmy's point of view. Number one, start your mesh implementation with your innovators. Find the people who are excited to try out something new. You want to spend your early time on innovating and learning, not constantly driving buy-in. Find good initial partners. Number two, it's okay to start a bit simplistic with each domain and on your general implementation of data mesh because you better believe there are complexities coming as you scale. This is not going to be simple. Data mesh is not going to be simple if, if you're really trying to do it right. But the ability to tackle that complexity effectively is what differentiates data mesh to, you know, so that unavoidable complexity ends up being where you find lots of incremental value. So you will have complexity. Don't try to make it too complex at the start. Number three, data product complexity is often from maintaining interoperability across the data sets within the data product not just to other data products, but even within, if you've got five, six data sets. You want to build out a data product with more data sets if you can, because that means there is much more information a consumer can easily leverage that is highly related instead of stitching things together across multiple data products. You want to try and put a lot into one data product from his point of view. Uh, number four, potentially controversial one here, there is value in inorganic data product growth. A central team can see where there is a gap in the available data on the overall mesh level. Even where there isn't a use case calling for a specific data product, filling in those useful or those those imp important information gaps can create an environment where more use cases will emerge more quickly. You know, Scott note. I go back and forth on this a lot. Data for the sake of data is bad, but if you identify these gaps, it can accelerate a lot of new use cases to come forward and people, you know, that kind of getting more people into an easy space where they see, oh, I can satisfy my use case quite easily. That's great. So I, again, I kind of go back and forth on this. Number five, financial services is somewhat unique in that many of the desired use cases are already known. Lines of business have had their use cases often for decades. So it's about serving those them well in, in new ways rather than inventing new use cases whole cloth, at least at the start of a financial services journey. I thought that was kind of interesting. That's a little bit different than a lot of other spaces. Number six, potentially controversial one here, start from serving existing needs instead of trying to invent those, those new use cases. That imagination around new use cases will be important but there's probably a lot of things your business wishes they could already do to serve customers. And that's where your low hanging fruit is, you know, around what you're already kind of doing, but 
that it's just something that you couldn't really you know, satisfy based on your old ways of working. Go after those first to create adoption momentum. Number seven, while data mesh might provide more initial friction to use cases, you need to gather up more information early to embed the necessary regulatory or governance decisions. It means a better all over overall outcome. But getting people bought in that the initial friction of, of getting that governance set up ahead of trying to get into the use case is worth it. Getting them bought in that it's worth it can be hard. Number eight, the most important metric, at least for Northern Trust, is shown value. That demonstration creates momentum through excitement and it pushes adoption as more teams want to get some of that value and they can also have that fear of missing out. But it's important that it's not just generated value, it's showing that value. Number nine, what success looks like in data mesh will be different for every organization, especially through the different phases of your mesh implementation. Scott, note, this is so incredibly important. Consider what would make your implementation a success in each phase instead of, you know, trying to be a success right from the start as if you're going for your year four of your implementation. I'm even writing a book on this. Number 10, it's important to understand the difference between creating the ability for teams to leverage data mesh and actual adoption. One is much more tech-focused and is very important, but value comes from people participating and using what you build. Just because you build it doesn't mean people will use it. Focus on ensuring adoption instead of creating the most beautiful, perfect platform or things like that. Number 11, it's crucial to constantly communicate why you are going this route with data mesh. Even if there is friction to getting something completed, it's quote unquote, the right kind of friction. You are making your data work sustainable and scalable. Number 12, there's a steep learning curve in getting to critical mass with data mesh. Each domain has a different capability level and trying to keep teams collaborating and communicating well can be a challenge. Don't assume good communication will happen between those domains or anyone in kind of the data mesh. You have to specifically focus on enabling that communication, not just assuming it's going to happen. Number 13, another one potentially controversial. Leverage your central team to help domains early in their mesh journey. Help from this central team is an easy way to inject speed to getting that initial data product shipped. And at the same time, they will they help bring that domain's capabilities up to a necessary level. Number 14, when helping a domain, the central team's goal is to get them to good enough quickly and then give them the autonomy to do what's valuable. Things like internal sharing communities are then extremely helpful as domains can exchange deeper insights with each other and connect, creating potential collaborators. Number 15, potentially again controversial here, when first working with a domain, start simple. Don't go for any kind of advanced use case or you know, data product. Build up their capabilities instead of trying to throw them in the deep end. The reason why I think this one might be controversial is you know, there are these big places where people look to unlock value. Start very simple is what Jimmy's saying, and I, I kind of agree with that. Number 16, there are so many complexities in data mesh. Constantly consider trading complexity versus value. 
whether that is speed, a deeper use case, etc. The complexities will still be there when teams are better able to deal with them. No need to try to tackle everything at the start. This is where a lot of folks kind of fall down in their implementations. Number 17, take measurements such as time to first data product production for a new domain with a bit of with a big grain of salt. If you are close to the domain, you can get a sense of how much friction in your processes and platform, but there are so many factors impacting time to launch an initial data product, right? Did they already have the data modeling done? Was this domain already pretty capable? So how much of that is on kind of the platform versus how much of that is specific to the domain? Number 18, there's a hard balance to strike between data modeled to fit the use case and data modeled to fit with the rest of the data that's available on the mesh. Especially hard when the domain really doesn't understand how to model data well yet. Be prepared to help domains out to make sure they aren't just publishing a data silo in data product form. Number 19, there are many places in your implementation where you want to reduce time and friction. Getting to a proper level of understanding isn't bad friction. Trying to rush people through their understanding of data and how their data plays into the organization is likely to bite you in the end. Same for trying to rush people through learning your your new ways of working, right? There are some places where friction is because it's necessary rather than a place where you want to kind of, you know, try to remove all of that friction because it shows you where you actually need to uh, to focus. Number 20, while it might seem obvious, focus is such a crucial aspect to doing data mesh right. Helping figure out people figure out what to focus on when and keeping the lines of com- communication open to figure out what's most important right now is tough, but it's very important. It's very valuable. Number 21, it's incredibly helpful to help people connect the dots, help them see what could be possible. If you have people focused on making sure others can understand the big picture of your implementation and the available data, they can contribute to that big picture so much more. Number 22, An organization starting out highly centralized will have a very different journey to one that is starting out highly decentralized. I think a lot of people skip over that. It feels a little obvious when it's said, but eh, you need to understand that. Number 23, potentially controversial. Your central team is there to mostly, quote, coordinate, facilitate, and align people to the policies and practices, plus drive adoption. Look to have a guiding hand, a very light touch. Number 24, potentially controversial, be very careful cutting corners in your mesh implementation. There are many ways to hurt your scalability in the end. Governance is especially a bad idea to cut in financial services. And I would say personally, it's a bad idea to try and skip through uh, a lot of your governance, no matter if you're in financial services or other sectors. And finally, number 25, potentially controversial, ask yourself who at the end of the day is tasked with making sure your data mesh implementation continues to progress. Not the specific tasks like building a data product, but the overall implementation. If there isn't someone focused heavily on that, you might want to reconsider your approach. And what I would say here is this is something that keeps coming up around transformation. You know, should the CDO really be leading the overall company transformation? It's kind of the same thing with data mesh. Do you want just people kind of 
doing it or do you want someone really, really focused on it? Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Okay, very, very excited for today's episode. I've got uh, Jimmy Coslow here, who's the Data Mesh Enablement Lead at Northern Trust. But to be clear, he's only representing his own views on this episode. We're going to be talking about a topic that's been in my head for a long time. And it's something that I think is really, really important because it's something that when you think about scaling your data mesh is is crucial. And that's, um, do you have all of your your incremental data products? Are they all from organic growth? Or are they all from a new use case? Or do you start to say like, hey, let's let's fill in some of the gaps here. Let's do some forcing function to 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 really get that critical mass. So then additional use cases kind of emerge instead of creating data products just for that. So I really I'm super excited about that. And then you know talking about kind of the slow roll versus ag- aggressive push to data mesh. You know. Uh, regulatory and advanced analytics and how do we think about that stuff as well as kind of (laughs) how much should we decentralize and when and what decentralized and how do we figure out are we doing the right things and just kind of figuring out all of that stuff and and how do we think about kind of how federation actually works in all of this so we're going to talk about a whole heck of a lot of different things um very excited but uh before we get into that jimmy if you don't mind giving people a bit of an introduction to yourself and then we can jump into the conversation at hand sure scott thanks i'm excited to be here uh i'm jimmy coslow i'm the data mesh enablement lead at northern trust uh, and really the product manager serving in a capacity to help uh, prioritize and define the capabilities that our data mesh platform is going to have and then in my role on the enablement side, it's working with folks across different business units in those key roles, the owner, steward, and the custodian to understand the data mesh processes and onboard their data. So it's it's a bit of a change management aspect of it there too. And, and throughout my career, um, I've, I've been engaged with data. I started with the Nielsen company, which was all about generating insights from data for clients and users. Uh, after business school, I went into consulting and saw how data was used across multiple industries like healthcare, retail, uh, financial services, and then at Northern Trust for the last two and a half years, I've been a part of our data mesh journey, and I'm I'm, I'm leading the the scale rollout of this across our enterprise. Well, and I think it's great that there's actually a role specific to enablement of of data mesh because I think this is one of the things that I think is also a challenge for a lot of organizations is they're like, I, I don't have, you know, I don't have the heads to do this. I don't have the the focus on it. And it's like, well, okay, is this part of somebody's actual remit that they're focused on doing this? Or is it just kind of part of everybody's job and then it becomes nobody's job? So I, I, I like that they're actually doing that with you. Yeah. It's, it's been important, I think, to, you know, kind of evangelize, but also help support. And you've got this small central team that is associated with any type of, of engagement like this that kind of sets the governance and sets the policy. So part of my role has been working those out and tweaking them and fine tuning them to make sure that we can r- really 
make this as applicable to many as many people as possible. And I think that's that's been one of the key aspects of it. So let, let's talk about kind of as you're you're like you said, you've been there for two and a half years. The the data mesh journey has been going on for somewhere in that range, and so um, you're kind of uh, not hitting late stage. I, I always think everybody's like. When they actually talk and it's behind closed doors and it's not actually recording where the comms team might hear you, uh, everybody's like, oh, we're only in the second or third inning. And it's like, so is everybody else. Everybody just is. But like you're you're starting to hit that phase of I, I talked about kind of just in phase one, you're just starting to think about just use cases. And then you're starting to head into that second phase as to going broad. And do you start to think about domains saying, what's your suite of data products? Like, how do you think about your f- full information coverage of your domain? Like, how do you think about that? So I'd like to hear how you're starting to approach that question. You know, not necessarily what are the exact answers, but how do you think about, are you waiting for the use cases? And, and are you seeing that the use cases just keep popping up in the same few places or are they so few and are they so far between that you don't have any linking between you know you've got something that's over in, in way left field and you got something that's way over in right field and you're like why don't I have anything in center field so that there's more use cases that kind of populate the entire outfield or however you think about that there's definitely a magnetism of where they start to to pull and to land um but I think you know like like many we started small started small um in in one area with with your your uh innovators, right? If you think about the technology adoption life cycle, you've got, um, you know, innovators on the left side, you've got, uh, visionaries and pragmatists who kind of make up your early, uh, your early adopters. And then on the latter part of the curve, you've got the, the conservatives and skeptics who are kind of later on in their adoption life cycle and, and show up later. But we're really, you know, early on, of course, have focused on those people who are enthusiastic about the theory and the concepts and finding places for this to work. Um, and, you know, er, the early users here are the ones who help drive a lot of our, our enhancements. Um, and then the, the key piece of that is thinking about how that scales generally to others. Um, and yes, the early use cases were simple, but as you get into the adoption scale of this, you start to talk about the complexities that exist um, and the, the, the values where the complexity is, right? That there's a lot of different ingredients that can be required Um you know, not many analytics use cases typically are successful with one or two or three data sets. You've got to think about four or five and then how those are interoperable, right? If you're creating a general data product, how do those become interoperable and usable for others? So um, trying to, to find that sweet spot has been, I think, the biggest challenge. Um, but one of the things that, that I've seen is that you've got, you know, the early adopters who are demonstrating the value showing what's possible, showing what's capable, and then trying to, to, to engage others um, because there's ultimately ingredients to these complex data products that are needed elsewhere. So that's where you start to think about the organic growth where some of the stuff happens naturally, which I think is the ideal use case for a mesh where you've got a, an ecosystem where people interact and talk to one another and say, I've got this product, but I need an extra ingredient. How can I work with the people in those key roles to make that connection and to have them on board in the data mesh? And that's where I think a lot of the friction comes early on. Um, but then you've got the inorganic part of growth where you've got a centrally funded team and a centrally funded initiative, which is a bit counter to the whole federated model of the mesh. And what 
what we're seeing is I think a little bit, of, you know, there's obviously a balance. Um, and that's what I, I think is, is best in this case, especially as you try to, to start out early, but how do you fund those data products that will get you to critical mass, right? There's typically an inventory of maybe a half a dozen products that everybody needs. If you can get those engaged, produced and, and accessible and discoverable for others across the organization, then, then you'll have a, a, a critical mass that people can pick and choose from, from an a la carte menu. And that's where you start to see a lot of the uptick in adoption and engagement. And then that's where you start to see the, the principles of the mesh coming out. For example, if you've got a data product that needs, you know, maybe it's say it's 80% complete today. That works for that one use case, but you always need the extra incremental percent that may need an extra field or an extra attribute. Well, you work through the process, which works like it's supposed to, and the product owner is able to deliver that enhancement that then works for that next incremental use case and that inc incremental piece of value. So I think it's it's finding that sweet spot and helping it run efficiently uh, is is obviously the 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 journey we're all trying to get to. So I mean, you you covered a whole bunch of things in there that I wanted to kind of poke at. One was kind of the genesis of of use cases, and it seems like what you were saying there is still what you're seeing is the genesis of most use cases aren't. I have found that there is this data and is it and this might be where you're talking about that critical mass as to you know that there's enough linking infrastructure and the the information out there that you could generate a new use case because you're seeing what's already available. And I know in financial services it's 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 somewhat different because people have had these use cases that they've wanted to do for for decades a lot of times. But like are you seeing that the genesis for a lot of the use cases is still simply a business need versus that and somebody goes and looks for the data and goes, okay, there's a bit of the data here, but I need more. Or are you finding that people are starting to go, oh, this exists and I, I could create something off of it? Or is that why you're thinking about kind of doing that forcing function where you've got enough critical mass where that actually can happen because it's just the, those gaps between the things are just too too big right now? Yeah, I, I think one of the positives in financial services is that the use cases are are well-defined. You, you pretty much understand what you're going to use up front. Um, it, the change becomes giving people the opportunity to do more with it. And w in my conversations, I'm seeing that people understand that. I think it's just a matter of, of putting that into practice because that's not the way folks have operated traditionally. Um, you know, I don't want to think about the iPhone, right? People didn't know what they needed before it was before it existed. Once it was created, you can't live without it. Um, and that's the the smartphone technology boom that's kind of revolutionized the the way we communicate and interact. You, you think about that type of analogy here, and you try to help people understand that they don't know what they don't know today. But if you have this smorgasbord of data, then you're you're able to to pick and choose and do new things that that have never been done before. So so. That's where that is where the forcing function, I think, comes in to get to that critical mass so that people can start to create the new combinations that are incremental. Yeah. And I think a lot of what you were saying there is that there's kind of this theory as to we we know that that there are people out there that have use cases that just haven't said out there like 
if this like it's almost like you can't dream that it exists, right? Like exactly what you're talking about of, oh, wouldn't it be it? Have you ever seen those those old cartoon or those old drawings in in um, magazines from the 50s or 60s? And there's like these space uh, futures from like, uh, you know, in 2020 or like, uh, but that their their phones are still wired even though they're like in space and they've got like these little bubbles on their head and things like that that you don't think about what like how that could all change and i think that that we're seeing that a lot with with a lot of different organizations but like like you said there's a lot of these use cases that people already know that they want to do is it that you're finding that what's out there right now isn't necessarily serving those kind of use cases that you know are out there? Or are you trying to focus more on getting people to imagine more, you know, imagine a world where, and that you're, you're getting them to focus on doing way more because you're filling in more of these gaps. And so then they could imagine a world where when it, they, they couldn't have imagined it. Well, are, are, which, which one are you thinking is, is kind of the, near-term focus that you'd be looking at here the the near term is 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 adoption but but it is it is that imaginative exercise of what would be possible if you had x y and z how how could you deliver more value to clients and users internal or external to the company and that's the piece that i mean there there is so much opportunity and that's why i think this 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 model um, it, it provides a way f- for us to think differently and to operate differently at scale across an enterprise. And that's the piece that we're, we're trying to latch onto, um, and to be imaginative and, and, and to, th- to think about how the building blocks come together to, to create that, that platform that people, anyone can go to and, and latch on and, and, you know, create their own recipe. And there's one other aspect of this, Scott, where you've got, you know, folks who do this today uh, and they do it today with tools that are on-prem or technology that, that we know maybe doesn't scale as easily as, as cloud. When you move to the cloud, you've got the aspect of governing your data, creating an ecosystem where it, you know, where data products are discoverable and that's what the, the data mesh platform brings to the table. Um, but, but in that instance, you start to try to get people to, again think differently um the the tools are different the the processes and approach are different and the requirements are different too so you start to build in that the you know you're getting a lot of the regulatory requirements and the compliance requirements built in as you move to a platform that's cloud-based and with the governance that the the data mesh provides and i think that's where we're trying to get people to understand that nature of it as well that you've by going down this path you've you may have a little more friction because you're de- you're designing a process that captures these key elements up front which which again changes the way that that people imagine things um and it, you might face some resistance there too uh, and that's just i think one of the natures of of rolling this out as a as a big change um and and again it, that leads to more of an inorganic approach too trying to get folks to understand and engage and say, this is something that we need to do um, for many reasons, for growth, for regulatory purposes. Uh, and then you, you start to balance how much of it is a is an offensive strategy 
for for growth and imagination and how much of it might be defensive for making sure that we've got all the controls in place that that reduce risk um, and and help us respond better uh, to to compliance related questions. So there was there was literally one word in there that I wanted to react to specifically just because I'm literally writing a book on this and stuff. But like you said the word success. So I'd, I'd like to understand right now, what does success actually look like? Like, because sometimes that's okay. The use case, the use case is the only thing that matters versus the greater overall learning as to how to do this versus the momentum versus the, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, doing it where we're, we're learning better and better to do the governance at this scale and that we're, we're learning more and that we're, we're prepared to, to tackle more and more. So like, when you're thinking about your lead as the mesh enablement lead, right, or that your your role is the mesh enablement lead, what what does success actually mean in this right now? Because you you've got these fifty different things that you're trying to balance. Like, is there like one or two metrics that you're reporting on? Is there fifty or like how do you think about communicating that up? Because this is the thing that a lot of people are, are really struggling with is we think we're doing really well. We think we're really doing well with the platform, but we think we're doing really well with the the use cases or the governance or the what. And yet, how do you communicate that? It's been really, really difficult. Yeah, all of those elements build on one another and they all they all they all build and contribute to adoption. And I think that's where that's that's the ultimate end goal. But but right right now the the focus is on value and Doing everything to get to value and demonstrate the value, so that you you can build on like like learning leads to value. Um, value in one specific use case might might it, it's contagious, and it might lead to to value across other use cases, and that's where you build to momentum. And I think that's that's you know at each phase in the journey, the success success measures are a little bit different. Um, but I think at any point in the journey, it's 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 more about the the speed to value and the value that's that's created with these new ingredients. And that might take time, um, which is why this whole thing's a journey. But but that's where that's where the the focus I think should be because you could talk about number of data products. I don't, I'm not sure that's a real as as effective as a metric as as what you get from the the value that the data products create. Yeah, I mean, if you saw the the, I think I'm at. 120 metrics or something so far in my success metrics books. And I'm only, you know, 60% of the way through because there are so many different things as to, I, I liked kind of what you were saying there is success is value and we measure value in a lot of different ways. And that's where I think like, you know, number of data products is useful when you think about how far along the journey have we come, yeah. but it's, that's just it. It's just a marker along. It's, it's, you know, how long have you come of number of miles or number of kilometers on your road trip versus what did you do and what what all did you see? What fun did you have? Like, what were the conversations? Like, all that fun stuff. Um, I, I think exactly that. And so where, I guess, one question that I'm having a, a lot, especially, you know, because I, I talked to Con a long time ago about this journey and, and what, what you're doing at Northern Trust, like, how are you actually communicating that? Are you having difficulty in any way communicating that value to the leaders? Are you having any difficulty communicating that value to the consumers? Or is there anything that's going on from from that perspective? I think 
you, you know, you mentioned Con. Con was part of or, or instrumental to our early early part of our journey in getting getting folks organized and aligned uh, behind this concept. I think I think the concept has certainly grown and taken hold in in the, in the last you know eighteen months. Um, and and I think from a strategy perspective, that's pretty well understood. Um, but it's it's been a, the focus of getting teams ready to use it. Because I think you 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 think about you know, it is such a change and it's, it's a paradigm shift in terms of business, business taking ownership over from IT and, and the, the migration of the, the data warehouse to data lake to data mesh model where that, that, that paradigm does shift. Yeah. How, how are you communicating? Like what's the, what's uh, going to be a value and how do you get them bought in that this is a value? Like, how do you think about communicating that this is going well or, or how this is going or things like that. Like, how do you think about that communication? Because it is so different between producers and consumers and re- reporting up to leaders and that whole thing up and down. Uh, so the, the communication aspect of it, I think, is where you get in into one of the challenges um, that that you face with this paradigm is having, you know, having a, the, the defensive focus embedded in your data mesh um, causes friction and it, it actually may force some people to to do things the other way because it's easier or faster but but I think we all know this this paradigm and this this the mechanics that are associated with it it's the right way to go it's the right way to go about this it's the right way to go about modernizing and making use of the cloud and making use of the cloud at scale and I think that's been one of the things that one of the hurdles we're trying to to get over in in terms of communicating why this is important, what it's going to do from a long term perspective, um, that that leaders understand and are driving, and it's about it's about the the folks on the ground who work, you know, with with their hands using the data, that have to be the ones you manage from an adoption standpoint, um, and, and that's where I, I'm interested too in in terms of your thoughts on how this. This process, yes, it introduces friction, but it's the right kind of friction. It's the it's it's what we need to do. So, so that that's again, is the big balance of communication is that the 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 friction you're facing is good friction, and and that's that's a, a it's tough for for folks to grasp. Well, I think what you're talking about is the friction to saying should we just be doing something rather than doing the right thing, and that that forward momentum of should we rush into it? And and so, um, you know, Benny Benford's episode, he talked about, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And so it's like, okay, in order to maintain your agility and your, you know, speed and your your ability to to kind of shift and 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 move around, you can't go overly quick because that's where you get into tech debt, right? This is where I think the modern data stack idea was so broken fundamentally and why I think people have moved away from it is that the modern data stack was about getting something out based on what you wanted to do and getting it out as fast as possible instead of as scalable, as supportable as possible. And part of that happens when you're upstream, like whatever you're consuming from is constantly changing and breaking on you. So you might as well bring build something that's on a, you know, it's already on a shaky foundation. So you don't care if you've built it shakily, because you're going to have to rebuild it in, in six, eight weeks, no matter what, even if you built it to be absolutely perfect and rock solid, you're going to have to do a whole bunch of work in that amount of time. And so I think a lot of what you're talking about there is 
the the natural friction of thinking through where you want to head and not getting ahead of yourself. And so I'd love to, to understand where you're where you're seeing that, but also you talked about kind of bringing new domains onto the mesh. Are you are you focused right now on deepening with existing domains? Are you focused on bringing on new domains? And like, how do you think about balancing those two? And how do you think about bringing on those new domains? Because exactly then you're, you, you've got additional friction of, should we just bring on all of the domains? And it's like, no, we can't handle that. We can't support that. We want to do this the right way. So like, like, how are you communicating that to people who, who might be going, we're seeing success, add gas, right? Like you think about uh, startups and things like that. They they throw a bunch of money at sales and marketing because we're seeing success. So let's just add gas. And it's like, but we can't really do that on the data side if we want to think of this as a sustainable long-term journey. So a lot of different questions in there, but I'd love to hear kind of how you're, you're thinking about that. Uh, that's a big one. And I think that's, we touched on a little bit earlier from a, um, you know, the, the, there's value in complexity and many of the use cases are cross domain and not all the domains are at the same level of understanding and same level of speed. So you start to, to add in your variables and the levers that, that you need to consider when you're rolling this out. And that's, that is, that is where the crux of the challenge lies is how to, how to put this pattern in place with the complexity that many organizations face and there's a lot of plate spinning at times and you're, you're trying to get everybody to a consistent level of understanding and capability. And that all is part of the, the steep learning curve to critical mass. And, you know, I think, I think proving value in one domain, there's, there's a lot to that, which again, gets us to some of the success factors earlier. You start to build a little bit of momentum. Um, but then you've got one domain who's ready to move really quickly and they're looking at another domain saying, we'd love to have have some of this data um so then you bring in the, the central inorganic nature of it to to try to to inject inject a little speed and and money and funding to get one domain up to speed um but but it's i think as the enablement piece of this is about making those connections and getting folks to talk and and i think that's that's been the focus as of late is when you 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 start to run into the the wall of complexity, it's making sure that folks understand requirements from either side and are able to, to have a, a, an educated discussion about what we're trying to do, how we're trying to do it and how the pieces will fit together. Um, and that's, that, that's it. Yeah. And I think a lot of what you're talking about there is, um, the, again, a, a lot of these fundamental questions as to this isn't projects. Like you're in a journey and that journey itself is almost like it's a product and you're managing the life cycle of your journey. And so you're not just like, hey, let's get to the end. Let's get to the end. Because, um, you know, I mean, if you look at like um, efficient compute and things like that, if if, you know, you have one thing that's really, really fast at its execution and then it's always waiting on something else, then, you know, you have hurry up and wait and all that stuff. So I think what I'd love to hear is a little bit more about how you are bringing those domains up to speed or how you're, you're, you're thinking about, okay, we can, we can either let them naturally get up to speed or we can inject a little bit of, of speed into them. Like, how does that actually work? Because there's, there's a lot of people out there that are like, 
well, if we could inject speed, we would, but we don't even know how to. So have you started doing that? And, and do you have any anything that you'd recommend for people as to actually inject some speed? The injection of speed definitely, I, 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 I feel, comes from the support from the central team early on in the process, getting folks to, to, to the development level, right? Then letting them take development and autonomously go to testing and deployment. And that's what we've seen has helped new domains come up, come up to speed is where you, you take something that's repeatable, whether it's an ingestion pattern to land data in, in, into the cloud, into the mesh environment, or a repeatable process that you can use to kind of curate a data product. Taking that, allowing someone else to, you know, giving them the tools and the, the training needed to understand it, helping them, you know, kind of helping them with training wheels, maybe let's say to get them started. And then once, you know, the, the, the goal of the central team, I believe, is to get as many users to autonomy as possible and helping them do that with processes that are easy to use. And then the, the central support is, has been one of the ingredients that's, that's worked so far. Um, but, but then it's, it's, it is about the pace and starting simple. And I think once the, once the piping is established, um, then you've got, you've got scale, which is good. So, so again, it's, it's getting that, that core use case for one domain and then having building that on that foundation of knowledge to then address some of the complexities, because all the complexities we've talked about, um, people certainly aren't ready if they're a brand new domain. So you've got to get them understanding, get them started on the path. And then, and then I think create a community of practice much like you have here to have people start to share ideas and, and address some of these complexities. It's doing that uh, within an enterprise and within different business units and different domains that, that is, is key to make sure this, this whole thing, you know, you know, in the future, I think one day I hope that this, this whole ecosystem can function on its own. The invisible hand of the market is connecting one, one domain to another and helping them engage and get the right level of data that they need to create this value. Um, but, it, but until you do that, it's, it's about, about the focus that you can provide to get each, each domain to publish with, with, with autonomy. So I, I've got about 40 different follow-up questions that I could ask there. What one is when you're bringing a domain on, are you just saying we're going to, we're going to work with you to, to build a simple initial data product. So you understand how to do this and whether that's associated to a use case or you'll find a use case where it's useful for, because a lot of people are, are just going, okay, well, we've got this use case and we've got the capability at the platform level. So we're just going to have this domain and we're going to get them up to speed, but that complexity can be pretty high. And so then it's a steep learning curve for that domain. Are you more focused on kind of getting something out, getting something of value and getting them into a mode where they can actually do this versus we're looking for the thing that's, you know, of significant value up front, but that there's a little bit more of a struggle and there's a little bit more risk associated to can they actually execute on this? How, how are you balancing that? We're definitely seeing them both. And I think, I think the, the majority of them, the cases in, in domains is start simple. If you don't start simple, then, then you, you, you run into other hurdles. And I think, I think, again, that's the iterative nature of, of the, the process that works, right? It's that, that being agile, being able to, to move quickly, adapt, um, and it's, it's something that, that I don't think this works without. 
Um, so being able to address the simple piece up front, um, I think just because this is so new and because it, it hasn't been, been proven so much, so much with the complexities that exist, I think you've got to, you've got to start small and then address the complexities as they come. I think that that's an interesting perspective on it. Cause I haven't heard that as much. People are bringing on new domains, but I haven't heard anybody specifically say, like bring them on uh, on easy mode, right? And and get something out there and find a use case where it's going to be a value to get them out on e- on easy mode, where it's not just you're creating a data product for the sake of creating one, but or for for the sake of learning. But that that's interesting. And and um, when you're talking about time scales, what do you have a typical time scale to go from um, you know domain starting till until they have? And it gets kind of complicated because it's like, is it their alpha or their beta or their actual V1 release? Or like, do you have like how and, and how that's changed over time? Because, you know, speaking of success metrics, like how fast can a domain get out their their initial data product? How fast can a domain get out their their second data product? And like how that all works is 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 a pretty interesting kind of perspective. That is another uh, measurement. Right, is, is speed speed to production, and again, it's it's been wildly inconsistent because again, every everybody has a different understanding. Um, but I think the the one thing that that we've really seen is that each incremental data product created, the time time decreases significantly. So speed speed to speed to production is challenging from a couple fronts. You've got some in some cases, domains have modeling that's already done. Their modeling's ready. They know what their data model is. They know they just have to learn the technology and the tools. So, in which case, you can control that variable because you've got processes and technology that say, "How can we do this in an automated fashion as quickly as possible?" So, the the goal is to measure what's repeatable, um, and and modeling's not necessarily repeatable. Everybody has a different understanding and different complexity, and that's where, it, you know, it's when do you start that clock? Um, because the, there could be a long lead time for people to, to organize what their data might look like in a domain, um, or they have it well organized, but they want to take a specific piece of that. And that specific piece of that is what they have to work on modeling out so it can be run through the process. So I think, I think you're starting to see, you know, we, we have measured from time of first engagement to time of production, um, but then tried to center in on all right, once you had all your ingredients ready, how long did it take you? And, and the good news is that that you can control that latter part of it. Um, but then the the initial lead up, the on-ramp is where you're trying to get people to autonomy so that they can work and get all, all the ingredients ready so that that when you when you hit the publish button, you know, things kind of run smoothly. Yeah, and and measuring okay, there's friction between initial engagement to production and how much of that is the domains don't understand data? How much of that is that the domains don't have it modeled? How much of that is that the consumers don't really understand exactly what they want from the use case? And so communicating back and forth with the domains to get it into the right shape and how much of that is friction that's on the platform side? Because some of that is organizational friction that you want to figure out how you can cut down and cut down and cut down. But if you try and do automated data modeling or anything like that, you're just going to end up with Geico, right? You're going to end up with garbage in, garbage out because you're, you, 
like the whole point of this is that we have something that is structured so that it, it can serve that use case as is. You know, I, I really liked a lot of what Khan talked about when um, you guys were, were doing um, data services and that, you know, it was like two to three months to get a data service out the door. And the the total cost of ownership was was huge on the consumers because it, the producers were like, we have made data available, therefore we are done versus we have made the right data available in the right format, in the right way so that people can actually use it. So I'd, I'd love to, to understand how you are thinking about those different factors. Like, how do you think about the difference between a um, measuring those different things and, and how you can get better on each of those, if, if you're good to, to dig into that? Yeah, I, I want to, there's, there's four of them you mentioned, right? There's the, there's the understanding. Um, and that, that in, with this new concept to me, seems like it's the, the, the longest pole in the tent. Um, people understand their, their data domains really well. Um, and you, you have to, you know, find the people who do and, and find the people that can contribute, um, to that, that understanding. And then you take understanding into modeling, um, and we touched on this a little bit, but, you know, modeling needs to be done with some consistency so that you have interoperability. And therein lies another, another challenge too, because you've got, you know, domains with different, different levels of understanding, um, and, and capacity to do, to do modeling and modeling takes time. Um, but, but I think, I think with those ingredients in place, um, the, the, the initial, the, I forgot the word, um, but the, the, the natural way of going about this is to publish, publish for a, a perceived need. Um, the thing we're trying to change is work with the consumer to define what they need up front and have them have that be the basis for what you publish. So that does take a little bit of the, the onus off of the consumer, it puts it on the publisher to publish in a way that that works for the consumer to to reduce the time that the consumer needs up to speed. So it should be fit for purpose and and modeled correctly. Um, and then and then once you get that, then there's the there's there's optimization throughout all of this. And there's optimization. I think you can optimize the platform more quickly because it's it's a little bit more controlled, and because each domain is different and bounded that's where it's more more difficult to optimize so i think i think you've got to you've got to work within each of those those areas kind of the four areas we mentioned um and figure out what levers you can pull to to try to to speed up or slow down depending on on the maturity yeah so i think what what i'm kind of hearing a lot of here is there, there's all these different things and, and you kind of want to measure them separately and that can get really fun trying to separate all the measurements out. But where where are you focused throughout your journey on, on cutting the time versus not, right? Like there are places where you want to accelerate and there are places where you don't. I, I think about this um, this curve when I was growing up on this street that we'd go by and it was banked the wrong way. 
and it was uh, it was banked the wrong way and it was right by a golf course and if you accelerated there you went skidding out like when it was winter you'd go skidding out onto the golf course um because it was banked the wrong way and so you know and so like that that has always kind of stuck with me so how do you think about where specifically you're focusing to try and cut speed and where is it still okay that you think you know oh, okay this this isn't the fastest thing in the world but getting people like maybe even on the platform side getting people kind of used to poking around at this stuff so that they actually learn what the different things mean doesn't necessarily have to be the worst thing in the world so i'd love to hear where you're like trying to shave and and where you think like hey here is where we really need to to make sure that we still take the time no matter what i view understanding as place you cannot shave time. You've got to get people a common understanding of a new tool set and a new way of working. And that's that's been a lot of our early focus is making sure that people understand the direction, the capabilities. And you know, sometimes there's myths that need to be busted. Um, and and some of those myths you've got to tackle head on and say, this is this is how we're approaching the situation so that folks can think about using the tool and then put the tools into practice. Um, I think you, I, I think you can actually shave time on the consumer side by having them clear, clarify their needs with a consistent set of a consistent pattern that say, I'm a consumer. This is the data I need. This is the timeliness I need it in. And it's going to be put to use in this manner. Um, that helps you establish the terms and conditions of use of a data product. And like, I think you can you can actually shave time in data product design, um, but you have to have the understanding on both sides so that folks can can work through the design more quickly. Um, and then you mentioned poking around in the platform. I, I think that's that's good, right? Anyone hands hands on keyboards and and the use of a tool is only going to build adoption. So getting all of the folks in the tool, whether it's searching from a consuming standpoint, searching in a marketplace for the tool, for the products that are discoverable, from a custodian standpoint, having them work with the tool to publish and tweak and modify, and then getting both all parties, consumer, owner, steward, custodian, working through data product testing and validation, um, that only builds understanding. So I think I think if you if you sh- shave time um, on on you know, the, the repeatable processes, you're, you're bound to have more success. Yeah. But, but there is the stuff that is like that learning, exactly what you said. If like, if we try and shave off learning, then people just don't learn. Right. And, and so I'm, I'm thinking, I, I, I used to use this analogy a lot and I haven't used it in a while, but this really brought this up of the old office space uh, where, where it's like, so what is it that you do here? I take the requirements from the, the consumers and I bring it to the Purdue, you know, and, and, you know, well, so do you actually do that? And it's like, well, my assistant does, I'm a people person. And, and it's like, how are you finding getting, how are you finding to actually enable those people to have better productive conversations quicker? Cause I think this is where so many people are struggling partially because they don't have the headcount to be able to do that. Like you are the person that is, enabling that to happen like you are somebody that 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 actually falls on your remit right like that is what you are supposed to be making sure happens well and so that's amazing because then it's actually going to happen right you know uh, 
all things considered, you know, maybe maybe there are two warring sides of, of two different factions or anything like that, but that you you are actually having that happen. Do you have anything that you could share for others that are struggling in that that thing? Is it be patient? Is it um, you know, add, ask leading questions? Is it like stay out of the process and be the observer? Because, you know, then they don't learn, you know, if you're constantly holding everybody's hands, you're not doing that thing. So like I'd love to to understand what you've learned there. Because I think that's that's where a lot of people are really struggling. One of the key aspects of of my current role is helping to provide focus. And because there's so many moving parts to the the ecosystem and the tools and the governance, you've got to get people and users focused on the right task at the right time. And patient certainly part of it. Um, because again, there's a lot of a lot of different understandings, a lot of conceptions, preconceived notions, misconceptions, whatever it might be. But getting the focus on the right part of the process throughout the life cycle and helping teams transition from one step to the next step is is where a lot of the the gains are made. Well, yeah, and I think a lot of what you're talking about there, like when I do my panels for for Data Mesh Radio, I have somebody who is the facilitator. I don't have somebody who's just a host that's just asking questions. I have somebody that's participating because you know you're you're seeing these things. You're in that space. You're creating the space to actually make sure this stuff happens. Because otherwise, you know, the number of times I do introductions between two people that are doing data mesh stuff and nothing ever happens because I didn't go like super specific and go, you will talk about this and you will talk about this. And, you know, it, it feels kind of like the eighth grade dance kind of thing of, of both parties going, I don't know what to do and I don't want to embarrass myself versus like, hey, just get out there and be funky. So like, I'd, I'd love to hear like, do you have any tips for somebody that that's that's trying to get others to go out there and be funky? Uh, maybe not funky, but we could we could figure out a way to uh, facilitation is, is key. And I think that's where, you know, you, you, you help provide focus, you help facilitate the conversations. Um, and, and you, you keep things on the guardrail, right? When you, when you think about moderating, um, you know, sometimes you might have a very interesting point that you hone in on and you approach on, but, but knowing when to do that and knowing what, what to do with it in the mesh ecosystem has been a big piece that I've tried to focus on. So pulling the right people together to make decisions, helping decisions happen quickly, um, connecting dots that may not have been connected organically, making sure that, you know, being out there listening and understanding what's happening so that you can, can draw a parallel to something that's happening on the complete other side of the organization, which again, helps reduce waste and helps reduce, uh, duplication. Um, that's a big piece of this as well, because in, if you, if you think, you know, across business units in a very, in a federated, uh, organization, you've got people working with data in many different ways. Um, but there's, there's potential for a lot of synergies that can, can be drawn across those, across those walls. Um, and in this data mesh ecosystem, it is a very, um, it, it's a shared, shared space. So everybody has to come together, have to, has to come to the table. And, and that's a lot about the facilitation role that that's key to enablement. It's, it's funny because a little bit of what you were saying there felt really um, a lot like what I do in the overall data mesh conversation of just 
bringing people together, making sure they're talking, saying, okay, well, you said this point, this other person said this point, or, hey, this thing that you're doing, you feel like you're totally alone. Here's 10 other people that are having that exact same problem. So it's it's funny. But um, so I wanted to to kind of look to wrap up on this this question that we were, we were planning to talk about, about centralization versus decentralization. And how do you figure out what should be more centralized, what should be more decentralized? I think this is the thing that frustrates me the most is people assume that since Shamax is we're doing decentralized data, it means we decentralize everything. And anytime I, I talk to her about this, she's like, it's that when I say that you don't have to decentralize everything, then people go, then I don't have to decentralize anything. And so, you know, it's that that thing. But like how what what are you finding that that are the benefits and the 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 pushbacks or the, the you know the drawbacks of doing these and how do you how are you figuring out what is the right mix and what is the right mix for each domain? Because each domain is slightly different and that you can't just go, here is the the exact approach and we're just going to copy paste from domain to domain. From a theory standpoint, you've got the push to federate. And that's a challenge, I think, because you're trying to, it, 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 it's a challenge when you have a federated organization because you've got different organ, different business units with different priorities wanting to do things their own way. So trying to federate that, something that's already federated, can really cause headaches. However, if you're if you're overly centralized, then you have to get people to think differently. So you have a you have a different change aspect where central organizations are used to being dependent on a, a governing body for decisions. Um and that's that's I think why the theory is so great because it can work in either in either in either situation. You just have different flavors of it, and you have different ways to approach it. So, you know, the journey of implementing a federated data mesh in a federated organization is going to be different than implementing it in a in a, in a centralized organization. So, I'm sure that's why people are are facing a lot of challenges, and that's why you hear different things from different people. But we're all kind of part of the same journey. Um, but, but I think, you know, we're, we've been trying to, you know, Northern Trust has multiple business units and we've been trying to, to focus on, on having a light touch central group who can coordinate, facilitate and align people to the, the policies and practices, and then getting different teams to come in and adopt and then tweaking and modifying as needed. So it's, it's trying to find the right balance of central. And I do think it changes over time. I think early on, we talked a little bit about this earlier, you early on, you, you need to have a forcing function and your central body might be bigger over time. That central body should right size to the level of, of need for the organization. And again, that's different on, on depending on the, the structure and the way you make decisions as an organization. Yeah. And, and I think, so I started to, uh, I mean, I, I started watching on Amazon Prime. Um, they did a new season of Takeshi's Castle, which is that old uh, Japanese game show with all the crazy stuff. And I think about like, they have different um, challenges and they're like, oh, we're, we're trying to take this castle and all this stuff. And it's like, these people go down these different challenges and then they're all trying to come to the same ending and still like, you know, take down Takeshi's castle. And I kind of think of this is Data Mesh Island or something like that. And that everybody's trying to get to this island or this spot in, you know, maybe 
it's um, there's like this weird myth of like this um, hidden treasure up in Colorado. And you think about how people get to that hidden treasure. And so, you know, maybe everybody's coming up some kind of mountains, but like everybody's coming from completely different areas. And so somebody's flying in or somebody's, you know, trekking up mountains or somebody's going across rivers or somebody's going across deserts and plains and stuff to get to, you know, Data Mesh Island or Data Mesh Central or whatever. And everybody's journey looks so different, even if we're still trying to get to the same general area. And it is an island, so it's not like this one, you know, X marks the spot. It's this big island that's got, you know, that everybody's kind of hanging out in different areas. And so you're kind of in the same region of each other, but everybody's had these different complete journeys and stuff. And so I, I the analogy still sucks because I don't know how to think about it topo- topographically, uh, topology-wise or whatever. But um, But I think exactly what you're talking about of... The centralization, decentralization, you have to think about what are we what are we trying to encourage? What are we trying to actually have happen from this? Because if I centralize all the governance decisions, then nobody knows how to do this. We have, you know, bottlenecks and things like that. But if I decentralize all of the governance and I don't have centralized policies and standards and things that people can easily apply, nothing matches up. So like what what matters and why and where where can we cut some corners? Where's okay? What's okay to say, you know what? This is not how we want it to work in the long run, but we're going to accelerate this by doing this thing now. So so the question about when to cut corners, um, I, I think if you cut corners, you're going to wind up in, in, in a tough spot. We talked a little bit about that too, but it's, it's actually where do you, where do you give a little bit with exceptions to w- without introducing risk? or adding to risk. And I think that that is that's been the challenge. It's especially when you've got you know governance that might have a high high bar. Um there are some very specific things that you have to do um to maintain compliance. And like those are the non-negotiables. So if you focus on uh hitting those non-negotiables um or having a pathway to deliver uh the the standard level of governance that we're expecting and then expect that to evolve over time, just like anything like the, like the size of your island can increase over time. I think that's the best part about this, this ecosystem is that you've got the ability to scale, uh, at will, um, with some of the new technologies. Um, but, but scaling within a division or department, um, can, can come at a different pace. And I think, I think the pace can be affected by how you manage those exceptions. Um, and, and, uh, how those exceptions change or or grow over time um, that leads to ultimately everyone taking the path that's right for them. Yeah, I think that's that's really, really helpful, caller. So I, I'm really appreciative of you. Hopefully nobody could have told in the actual recording edit, but uh, we've had a ton of technical issues. We're on recording number six of this. <laughs> um, but uh, Jimmy, is there anything that you had that you wanted to kind of wrap up or any any kind of button you want to put on the episode, anything we didn't cover? No, we covered quite a bit, Scott, and it was great. I, I thank you for, again, facilitating and connecting the dots in, in the community um, enabling the community, if you will, but, but it's, it's been great to talk to you and, and, um, that's it. 
Yeah. And same here. Technical difficulties aside, this was so much fun. But um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that would love to follow up with you, especially even just that title. Like people are going to be like, how do I get that title? Or how do I, you know, how do I get somebody to get hired for that for that title? But, um, you know, and you've got a, a lot of really great perspective as well. So where's the best place? Anything specific you'd like people following up about? Yeah, LinkedIn's great. I'll do my best to get back to, to folks who reach out. Um, but if you have questions, uh, I'm, I, th- I think the best part about this community is, is again, sharing experiences and we could do it via your medium. Um, there's, there's, I'm loving all the publications that are out there and, uh, you know, LinkedIn's a, a great way to get in touch and ask any questions you have. Okay. And I'll drop a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes to make it as easy as possible for people. But Jimmy, again, thank you so much for, for coming on and sitting through all these fun challenges with the, the technology side. And as well, thank you everyone out there for listening. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Jimmy Coslow, Data Mesh Enablement Lead at Northern Trust. You can find a link to his LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. 